Well, Father, this morning we are grateful for your great faithfulness, for your great mercy, and for your great love in our lives. Thank you, Father, that you who, through that great atoning work at the cross, have begun a good work in us, will continue to perform it. You'll continue to process us, and you'll continue to make us into the image of Jesus Christ that in your time you do make all things beautiful. Thank you, Father, for the life and story of Jacob that we've been dealing with. Father, the lessons are deep and they are rich and they are personal. Would you please continue to teach us now through your word? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, at our house this spring and summer... I have been hearing a lot every couple days about how quickly the days are passing. You see, you need to understand that Janet's great vision and drive this spring was to do entire deep cleaning of our entire home. Sometimes we call it spring cleaning. At our house, it's going to be spring, summer, and fall cleaning. Do you know what that feels like? You well know that two years ago in the spring was when Janet had her kidney transplant, and so everything just, you know, stayed the way it was. Last spring, my mom died, and a number of things happened, and not much happened that year. And so this was the year. What I hear regularly is that by the time school starts, I want this entire home to be clean from top to bottom, She has been picking away one room at a time and, to my delight, creating punch lists in those rooms of all the nail holes and things that need touched up and everything. And I'm talking everything. Well, the process has been slow and and so the burden is becoming greater that school is starting and the deep cleaning is not complete. I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 32 and 33 today as we have the great goal of encompassing and covering two entire chapters today. And I want you to have the mindset as we go through our passage today that Jacob is entering a new phase. It's not as though school is starting, but he is getting back to where he's supposed to be And entering once again the Canaan, the promised land, and it's the place where God has promised his blessing. It's the objective, it's the goal that's coming. He's leaving Laban, he's entering the promised land, but before he can get into that new phase, before quote-unquote school starts, God is going to do some deep cleaning in his life. There are some things that, that need looked at in his life. Jacob, if you're going to get where God wants you and you're going to have this new start and you're going to be in position for God's blessing, there are some closets that must be cleaned out or God will not be able to do his work. That's the mindset we want as we read these two passages. It's the ongoing story of Jacob, the Lord in his Sovereign oversight and the Holy Spirit, as he's inspired Moses, the historian here, uh, has recorded significant account in the life of Jacob. At first, in that cursory reading, you might think, 
What's that all about? So let me help you as we go by just breaking down what's happening in these different passages of Scripture. Um, We're going to move through, and we're going to actually begin with verse 55 of chapter 31 and remind ourselves that Jacob has had kind of his final showdown with Laban. They have feasted together. They have uh, set up a monument, a marker. Laban, his father-in-law, who represents a part of his life that he kind of wants to forget, a part of his life that is a lid on his ultimate spiritual blessing and development. He's leaving Laban behind. They have set a marker. Laban is going to be on this side of the marker. Jacob's going to be on this side. We're not going to mix anymore. Laban kisses his daughters and his children goodbye. It says, doesn't even say that he said goodbye to Jacob. I think he thought some thoughts about Jacob and he left. And there they are. And so it says, early the next morning, Laban kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. And then he left and returned home. Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And, wake, and when Jacob saw them, he said, This is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahanim. I worked on that word a couple different ways and never really concluded how to say it. I'll check in with Willem later. Mahanim. I don't know. It means two camps. The first thing we see in Jacob's, in this passage, as we continue the chronology of Jacob's life, is what I call, number one, Jacob's preparation. That's all it says. It says Laban left, and then it says Jacob himself moved out. He's heading towards Canaan, towards the promised land, from this upper area of Mesopotamia where he's been with Laban, his father-in-law. And then it just says, and the angels of God met him. And Jacob acknowledges that by saying, this is the camp of God. It can mean two camps or it can mean the great camp. And God evidently, that's all it says. Expositionally, there's no unfolding of why this happened. It's just, there it is. And I take it to be that Jacob still has some difficult days ahead and God is encouraging him with his presence. And I call this Jacob's preparation. Jacob, we're going to go. Know that I am with you. And as he looks around through spiritual eyes, God gives him the ability to see that not only am I camped here with all my wives and my children and my animals, not only is this my camp, but look around. This is the camp of God. Evidently, there was a host of angelic beings that were camped in that area. Normally, humanly speaking, we cannot see into the spirit world. There are times when... On limited occasion, God has allowed people with physical eyes then to see into the spiritual realm. We'll not take time to unfold it right now, but there are significant passages in the Bible. Uh, There are some Psalm passages. There's a Hebrews 1 passage and and a few others that, that clearly indicate that God works in the lives of his people through angelic beings. We can't see them. We can't feel them. This is somewhat of a popular theme in our culture. A few years ago, it was really popular. And you could buy all kinds of little trinkets to hang on, you know, you know, little wind chimes or whatever that were angels and all kinds of angels everywhere. And people like to imagine this. We really have very limited information about it other than that God will use his angels to work and protect 
and be alongside of his people. So I take it on this occasion that Jacob simply acknowledges and is able somehow to see that there is an angelic encampment where he is camped, and this is two camps. Mahanaim, whatever he says that word. And there he is. And that's all it says. Number one, Jacob's preparation. I take it that Jacob would be encouraged by that. That he would be reminded that God is with him and God has put angels around him. This is not Jacob's first encounter with angels, you'll recall. So Jacob, number three, right away, it just, verse three, it switches gears and it says, Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. Jacob is traveling and he is going to cross a part of the territory where he knows is under the control of his brother Esau. And number two in our passage, we see Jacob's problem. God is preparing him for yet some difficult days ahead, getting him where he belongs. Do you recall that Jacob has a significant problem from his past? It hasn't gone away. It's there. It's Esau. He defrauded him. He schnookered him. He sinned against him. He offended him. And in fact, he went on a far journey under the guise of seeking a wife in fear for the very, his very life that one of his brother's arrows would find him between the shoulder blades and he would be murdered by his older brother Esau in light of stealing his birthright, lying to his father about who he was, disguising himself as Esau, receiving the blessing of his father as the younger brother. Most of you know the story well by this point. At this point, God is preparing Jacob to enter the promised land. I am with you, angelic host. Immediately it turns to what Jacob is thinking about. Jacob is thinking about his brother Esau. And it says, we know he's thinking about him because it says, he sent messengers on ahead to figure out what was going on with Esau. Notice, number three, that Jacob has a plan. He instructed them, verse four, this is what you are to say to my master. You notice a little different uh, language going on here, a little different attitude in the heart of Jacob towards his brother. This is what you are to say to my master Esau. Say this, your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. He covers the course of 20 years of his history in about six words. I've been staying with Laban and remain there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, men servants and maid servants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord, what? That I may find favor in your eyes. Jacob's plan is this, and that plan will unfold in the form of these presents. But it's indicated here, I want you, my servants, to go find my brother Esau. I want you to approach him, and I want you to say that your servant Jacob uh, is coming to you, his master. And he has many, many goats, sheep, cattle, donkeys, camels. In other words... You might not want to whack him when he gets here. I don't know what's going on in Jacob's mind and heart completely, but based upon the way he's speaking, I have to assume that for about 20 years, as Jacob has been out in the desert raising his father-in-law's sheep and developing and ranching and farming, growing in wealth, in the recess of his mind, there is something that he has processed 
at a very deep level. And that is his sin against his older brother. Never goes away. Now he's going back to Canaan and he's got to pass through Seir. And Seir is under the control of big, burly, red-headed Esau, the wild man who controls the country. Jacob's hard attitude now is, you know what, I, I'm going to have to humble myself to my brother. We'll talk about that a little bit more. So his problem is Esau. His plan is to gift him, to cover him with gifts and make it worth his while not to kill Jacob. But then I want you to notice, and we see this continual spiritual development in Jacob. The next thing we encounter is Jacob's prayer. Look what happens. He becomes very frightened when the servants evidently never even talk to Esau, but they come back with their report. Now I am sending this message to my Lord that I may find favor in your eyes. That's the end of his message through his servants to Esau. Find favor that I would have grace in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, verse 6, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you. And, by the way, 400 men are with him. That was commonly known as a a military regiment type size. That was a, a little army. Esau is set up to do battle, and he's coming for you. And I take it that these messengers went on their trip, ready to bow down before Esau and tell him that his servant, Jacob, had much good on his behalf and was seeking his favor now after all these years. But they got over the crest of a hill or climbed up in a tree and they could look. That's about 400 guys and that's Esau and I don't think they ever even talked to him. And they went hightailing it back to Jacob with the news. And notice Jacob's response, verse 7, in great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people. Jacob's got a problem here. And it's a problem from his past, and it's never been cleared up. Who were with him into two groups? The people who were with him, he divided into two groups, and the flocks and the herds and the camels as well. He thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. You have to understand that he just made a deal with Laban and he just put a pillar in the ground that he's not crossing over the line. Kind of throw the line. Laban's line is there. You don't come across my line. I don't come across your line. He's got his back against that line and Esau and 400 men are coming at him. He's got a problem. He had a plan. He doesn't think the plan is going to unfold. He thinks Esau is going to come kill him and destroy him. And so he divides his group in two, thinking that while they are occupied slaughtering the first group, They'll be the sacrificial lamb for the second group to escape. See, Jacob is trying to assist God in making sure that the promise of that nation that's coming from him through his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac, and that he knows now through these 12 sons, 11 sons at this point, that they are going to be a great nation. He can't let them get wiped out. But he does something here that you have to respect, and I think that it's all in all sincerity. We have limited information given with these facts. We can only assume certain things. But verse 9 then says that Jacob goes to prayer. It's Jacob's prayer. He had a plan to deal with his problem, but now he has nothing left to do but to pray. This is the longest recorded prayer in Genesis. And it's the most detailed prayer that we have of Jacob. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. 
I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness that you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two groups. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, God, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. There's Jacob's prayer. Let's take just a minute in case we don't have time to come back to it. Because I think it's really not a bad formula for prayer there when you're in trouble. Notice what Jacob does. Just a, a breaking down his prayer. I had a young man that I was with this week who asked me, I'm praying a lot, but I don't know if I'm praying correctly. I said, quit worrying about how you're praying and just pray. But this was interesting. Then in our text, it kind of unfolds. Notice that Jacob begins his prayer with, with, first of all, a tone of formality or dignity. Notice what he says. O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord, Yahweh, Lord, my creator. I do think it's important not to just say, hey God, all right God. I have noticed in the last few years, there's been kind of this trend towards cool prayer. That when you pray, you kind of want to sound like you and God got this thing going. Hey, God, it's me, man. What's up? Now, I'm exaggerating. But I've been with guys praying before, and particularly young men. And I've, I've literally looked up and looked at them. It's like, who are you talking to, man? Who are you talking to? You really ought to be down on your face. And so one of the things I think it is important, and yes, the main thing is talk to God. Monty, you're up on a ladder and you're doing spouting and you can talk to God, man. You don't have to be down on your face, right? Tim, you can be fixing your barn doors and you can be talking to God and praying and opening your heart. You can be watering the weeds late at night saying, yeah, Lord, this is what's happening. But in my heart and in my mind, I think it's important, as Jacob did, to approach God with a sense of dignity with the reality that he is God and I am not, that he is the king and I am not the king. And I don't just come flouncing in. I have been invited into his presence as a redeemed one, covered by the blood of Christ. But I think it's interesting that Jacob is careful to address God with a sense of dignity. Secondly, notice his heart of humility. Notice his heart of humility. He says, Lord, you told me to go back, but... I am unworthy. You said you would prosper me, and I'm unworthy of the kindness and faithfulness that you have shown me. I came here with a staff in my hand, the clothes on my back, that's it. And now I am filthy, wealthy, rich because of your blessing. And Father, I am not worthy. That's indicative, isn't it, of a humble heart. I think Jacob's sincere here. Jacob acknowledges that everything he has is from God. He approaches with dignity. He bows in humility. Notice then, though, that he moves on and makes his request with clarity. Now, I think that's fine. I, this young man I was referencing, he was like worried that he was asking too much of God. He's got a real problem and he needed to address it with God. He said, no, be specific. Tell God what you're thinking. Open your heart to God. He sees and knows it anyway. But like a father would take his child on his lap and say, okay, tell me what you need here. Tell him. And Jacob does that. It's with clarity. And, and specifics that he says, and it's not long, it's it, because he's in trouble. Verse 11, 
Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I'm afraid he will come back and attack me and also the mothers and their children. I think he kind of threw in the mothers and the children to get God's attention. is isn't just about me, but I got all these women and children he's going to kill. Surely you can't let that happen. But I do appreciate that Jacob is being specific, isn't he? Lord, here's the deal. I'm going to die. And I need you to save me. And you know, that's a pretty good prayer to start with. If you've never prayed before and you don't have a relationship with God, do you know that you're under the death penalty of sin? And that's like the first prayer that every person ought to pray is wake up one day and realize that before a holy God, I'm going to die. I'm not going to be here forever. I'm just going to be a dash between two numbers. And then what? And I'm in the, the death penalty chair of condemnation. And God's righteous wrath is going to fall. The guillotine is going to whack me. And I have no righteousness of my own in which to prop up underneath to stop the blade. And the only thing I can do is turn to the cross and I can say, Lord, I have violated so many of your commands. You are a holy God and I am an unrighteous, vile sinner. I really am. And, And that's the humility that God's looking for, isn't it? And you pray a specific prayer. God save me because I'm going to die. The only way we can be saved is by the lifesaver, Jesus Christ. He's the one that went to the cross, didn't he? Took our sin upon himself. Spiritually speaking, became sin for us. That's why God turned away. And my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As he bore the burden of our sin. And then... It's our turn to approach as God burdens our heart and opens our eyes and we go to the cross and we say, Lord, I have no righteousness of my own. I have only violated your commands. I'm a sinner. I'm going to die and I'm going to suffer your judgment. Would you save me, please? That's not a bad prayer. In fact, that's the best prayer you can ever pray. You ever pray that prayer? If not, I challenge you today. Follow Jacob's model. You're God. I'm not God. I'm going to die. You can save me. You're the only one who can save me. It's only the righteousness of Christ that can save me. And that's something that happens between you and God. And a spiritual transaction takes place and you leave your sin at the cross and he gives you the righteousness of Christ and you can stand before him just. That's when you become a child of God. That's what we call being saved. That's salvation. It's incredible, isn't it? His prayer started with some dignity and formality. It certainly was carried out in all humility. He made his request in bold clarity. God, I'm going to die. Save me. Notice that he ends now now by appealing to God's integrity. I I like this. (laughs) Remember the women and the children are there too. But you have said. Okay, now he's going to remind God what he said. You know, that's not a bad thing to do when you pray. Lord, you said... You'd never leave me or forsake me, and I've never been so lonely in my life. Will you make yourself real to me? You said it. 
You said, Lord, that you would feed the birds of the air. You said, Lord, that you would clothe the flowers and lilies of the field. Lord, I have no food and I have no clothes. Lord, you said it. I'm going to hold you to it. Lord, I'm going to appeal to your integrity. You said it. I can count on it. That's what he does. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. Okay, Lord, if I get whacked, how is this going to happen? If he wipes out my family, how is what you said going to carry on? Lord, I remind you that you made a promise and you can't break promises. I think that's a pretty good way to pray. I think that's theologically sound. So there you go. If you don't know how to pray, pray by acknowledging that God is greater than you. Enter in, Heavenly Father. He's not your big buddy in the sky. A tone of dignity and formality, a heart of humility. Make your request boldly and with clarity and don't be afraid to appeal to God's promises and his integrity. That's a good pattern. That's just an aside. That's Jacob's prayer. And so it says, verse 13, he spent the night there. The next section we're going to see, he gets his presence ready for Esau. Jacob's presence He spent the night there, and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls, and 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and said to his servants, Go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. He instructed the one in the lead, When my brother Esau meets you and asks, To whom do you belong and where are you going and who owns all these animals in front of you? Then you are to say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my lord Esau and he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second and third and all the others who followed the herds. You are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, this is the line, okay? They got their talking point straight. Your servant, Jacob, is coming behind us. For he thought, Jacob did, okay? A little bit of human strategy going on here. He's trusting God. He's trying to trust God. It's kind of like us, right? going to trust God, but I'm going to figure out what to do about this myself in case God doesn't come through. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. Later when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. If you add it up, it's about 530 head of goats, cattle, camels, and donkeys. It's divided up into multiple groups, servants to take care of them. It's like these waves of presence, waves of gifts coming on Esau. He's trying to get Esau to realize that it's going to be in his best interest to, to love his brother. He's still trying to figure out what to do about his problem. That's Jacob's presence. We kind of shift gears now in verse 22 through 32, and we have Jacob wrestling with God. Verses 22 through 32, Jacob wrestles with God. I think this is a very strange passage, and... I'm not sure I totally understand it. I'll show you later how I deal with it, and we apply it. Let's read it. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his eleven sons, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. There was a deep ravine creek there. He puts them on the other side of that ravine. After he sent them across, so it was nighttime crossing. They probably got wet. It was rough. A bunch of them get across. But he's thinking, 
I've got to protect my family. I've got to protect my children. After he sent them across the stream, verse 23, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and men and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Isn't that an interesting and odd story? He puts his family across the... the, creek bed there in the ravine, this stream bed, then he's going to stay on this side. Evidently, perchance Esau should come, he can then encounter him before and beg him to spare his family. I take it that's what, all these gifts don't do the trick, and Esau comes through with the sword of slaughter, and there he is, he's at least on this side of the creek, and he can try to talk to him, and and as his head rolls, he can try to get mercy for his family across the creek. And then this strange occurrence happens. A man begins to wrestle with Jacob. Jacob is a strong man, evidently. And this man, in, at least at the human level, can't, can't out-wrestle him. It evidently goes on for some time. I remember when I was in junior high and we had wrestling in phys ed and they said we're going to go for, I think it was a three-minute period, maybe two minutes on the mat. Okay, guys, you're going to wrestle for two minutes. I remember thinking, two minutes, that's nothing. Man, you wrestle for two minutes, you're dying. Right, Greg? Paul, man, it's incredible. And then you take a breather, and then you start down again. You wrestle for two more minutes. I take it that Jacob and this man wrestled all night long. I don't know, throwing each other on the ground, evidently. I don't know if if Jacob thought he was being attacked by one of Esau's men. It doesn't tell us. But it does finally tell us that right before daylight, and I take it to be because the man wrestling with Jacob was a pre-incarnate form of Christ who had come embodied in the form of this man in pre-incarnate Christ, but God himself. And in Jacob, and he says, nobody can look at God and survive and it's going to be daylight. So let me get this over with. And he touches him on the hip. That's incredible. Some of you've had hip replacements and knee replacements. If you're a wrestler and your hip goes out of socket, it's all over, man. Your career is probably done even. He touches his hip, and I take it the rest of his life, Jacob didn't work right. He limped the rest of his life. It's interesting. He has this encounter with God, and he wrestles with God. And, and I don't know what was going through his mind and how out of breath and how worn out he was, but before daylight, evidently, finally, Jacob realizes that he's having an encounter with God and he latches on to him and he holds him and he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. We'll talk a little bit more about this in a moment. But I take this to be 
an incredibly important, pivotal, spiritual moment in the life of Jacob as he realizes it's not all about him, but it's about God, and he must have God's blessing on his life. And he grabbed a hold of God there and wouldn't let him go. Some of you wish you could do that, don't you? It's not always easy walking by faith and not by sight, and you wish you could put your arms around and grab him and say, you better bless me. But interesting, isn't it, that he touched his hip and wounds him permanently, weakens him, evidently a very strong man. Well, that's that account. Let's continue now and let's take in chapter 33. This is Jacob reconciling with Esau. He wrestles with God and he reconciles with Esau. So we see in these two chapters... Jacob's preparation, he met the angels, he had a problem from his past, Esau, he makes a plan, he prays, he gets his presence ready, then he wrestles with God, and now he reconciles with Esau. Let's read chapter 33 quickly, and then we'll draw some final application conclusions. Jacob looked up, and there was Esau, coming with his 400 men. So he's done wrestling, his hip is hurt, and he looks up, and here's Esau. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. He put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and their children next. Uh, I don't want to go on about it now, but I'm going to try to remember to point this out because it occurs to me that there are some boys who are in the front of the line with their maidservant mother who are the sons of Jacob, and they know that they were put out front to meet Esau to be the first ones to be slaughtered to try to take the edge off the sword. And notice the order. Then the maidservants and their children, verse 2, then Leah and her children next, and then Rachel and Joseph. And there's a day not too distant when those boys are going to take that boy Joseph and throw him in a pit, try to murder him. Because they know that their father would have gladly dangled them in the breeze to try to save him. We'll come back to that lesson. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. (laughs) It's hard to believe this is Jacob, isn't it? But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. How magnanimous. What a powerful, powerful moment. And he threw his arms around his neck and he kissed him and they wept. And then Esau looked up and he saw the women and the children. Who are these with you, he asked. And Jacob answered, they are the children God has graciously given your servant. And then the maidservants and their children approached and bowed down. Next, Leah and her children came and bowed down. Last of all came Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. Esau asked, what do you mean by all these droves that I met? Referencing all the animals. To find favor in your eyes, my Lord, he said. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob. If I have found favor, if I can find grace in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God now that you have received me favorably. And I think he meant that. Please accept the present that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. They did this little Middle Eastern barter thing. Here, this is for you. No, 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 no. I wouldn't think of taking that. Oh, it's for you. It's for No, 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 no. It's for you. No, 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 no. I have plenty. I have plenty. Take it. Okay, if you insist. They still do that today. And then Esau, verse 12, said, let us be on our way and I'll accompany you. Let's get on with the journey. I'll watch over you. I didn't come to slaughter you. I came to reunite with my brother. A time to forgive, isn't there? 
And then Esau said, let us be on our way. I'll accompany you. But Jacob said to him, <laughs> now think about what Jacob, um, 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 I love you, brother, but I don't know if I really trust you and I don't know what you're up to. I think the women and the children, the Lord knows they're tender and I must care for the ewes and the cows that are nursing their young. And if they are driven hard just one day, all the animals will die. So let my Lord go. You go on ahead of your servant while I move along slowly at the pace of the droves before me and that of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. Esau said, then let me leave some of my men with you. But why would you do that? No, 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 no. Jacob said, just let me find favor in the eyes of you, my Lord. So that day Esau started on his way back to Seir, where he, this whole territory that he evidently controlled. And Jacob, however, went to Sukkoth, where he built a place for himself and made shelters for his livestock. That is why the place is still called Sukkoth. Okay, the idea of animal shelters. After Jacob came from Paddan, Aram, he arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within sight of the city for a hundred pieces of silver. This is reminiscent of his father Abraham, isn't it? Buying property there. Uh, His grandfather Abraham, he bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. And there he set up an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. I didn't emphasize the fact that when he wrestled with the angel, his name got changed to Israel. You caught that, didn't you? Part of a new beginning. We'll talk about that in our concluding, concluding remarks. There's chapter 33 in this great encounter with Esau and Jacob. You know, I don't know what had been going on in the mind of Esau. Hebrews clearly tells us that Esau was a pagan man, and a godless man. And Jacob was God's choice. Jacob had manipulated the plan of God in a very offensive way to his brother Esau. I guess you could say time healed a little bit, didn't it? They had both been very successful. And I guess Esau just didn't really care about the blessing of God. Jacob cared very much about that. He held on to that pre-incarnate Christ, held on to him and said, don't leave me till you bless me. And Esau, oh, I don't care about that birthright. Hugs and kisses his brother. It's quite a story, isn't it? As we close out, I was trying to think, okay, what's God doing here? What's happening? These two chapters are kind of interesting, but I don't really know if I get everything that happened. And, And let me suggest that there are two necessary things that went down in the life of Jacob. Two Closets, you might say, that God had to clean out for Jacob. I think there were two things. Number one was the necessity of dealing with Jacob's past. And the other thing was the necessity of dealing with Jacob's pride. See, God was taking him back to the promised land. He was going to do his work in him. He was fulfilling his promise through him. But there was something from the past that was a roadblock. There was this matter of the offense with his brother Esau. Jacob was forced to deal with it because he had to pass through the land. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? As we encounter Christ and as we grow in the grace of our Lord Jesus, much of our past needs to be dealt with at the cross, under the blood, and put away, and it's gone. That's where it belongs. You don't root around in the past. What benefit is there? 
to root around in the sin of my past and try to figure out why I did that. You did it because you're a dirty, rotten sinner. But now you're a redeemed one. And it's gone. And in the mind of God, it is taken away as far as the east is from the west. But for some of us, there are some issues that remain from the past that affect the future and they have to be dealt with before God can bless us. And as in Jacob's case, this relationship with his brother wasn't going away. It was something that he needed to deal with. I don't know what it is in your life and maybe there's nothing. But it is possible that some of us never enter the promised land of God's blessing. We never quite get where we're supposed to be in our walk with Christ because there's, there's this matter from the past that I haven't dealt with. It is probably, first and foremost, a sinful matter. And so, yes, you can be forgiven in God's sight for it, but it is most likely a relational matter at some level with a family member or a friend, and it is holding you back. And I don't know if the Spirit of God would clarify in your heart today if that's the case with you. Can I click off with really quickly referencing how Jacob dealt with his past with, with Esau? How did Jacob deal with this broken relationship from his past that he had to deal with before he could move on with God? First of all, it started with his hard attitude, didn't it? My master, my servant, he said in 32, 4 and 5. Secondly, he made a safe and sincere communication with his brother, didn't he? He kind of broke the ice. You know, these things from the past that are holding us back spiritually, a lot of them have been laying there for 20 years, just like Jacob and Esau. Uh, And all of a sudden, you don't just like, bing, bam, here it is. His heart attitude was one of humility and recognizing that I'm ready to deal with this now. First of all, it's the heart attitude. Secondly, a safe, sincere form of communication with that area. In Jacob's case, he spoke to his servants and he said, this is what I want you to tell him. And remember what he said, tell him that your servant Jacob wants to find favor in your eyes. See, Jacob didn't go to Esau right up front and say, hey man, we got to deal with this. It's too big. It's too huge. God had been working in his heart. Now he carefully broaches it with him through a form of communication. You may need a third party to help you deal with this problem. Thirdly, then, we know that Jacob prayed and we went through his prayer. He prayed about it. Lord, I'm about to die and I need you to save me. Fourthly, he then communicates through a love gift. He kind of speaks the love language of Esau. I took a whole bunch of stuff from you. Now I'm going to give you a whole bunch of stuff back. I want to gift you. I don't know how that works in a practical way today. If we have to deal with something in the past, I certainly think it starts with a sincere heart attitude of humility and God convicting our heart that I have to deal with this. Secondly, you very well may need to go through a third channel to connect. You may not even be able to pick up the phone. You may not be able to go right to that person. You may need to talk to through somebody at first. Thirdly, you better be in prayer about it. Fourthly, it might not hurt to send a gift, a birthday card, a Christmas gift. I know it's been a long time and I know there's a lot here to deal with. But if I may find favor in your eyes, please accept this gift.
You see, what that does is gives the Lord a chance to begin to work in the mind and heart of the offended person. Esau has a great reason to be angry, doesn't he? Fifthly, he finally, after the love gifts and after the waves of gifts, I'm not saying we have to do that kind of thing necessarily, but some kind of a, an approach that communicates that I'm seeking grace and mercy from you. Notice a contrite face-to-face meeting in a very contrite manner. Did you notice that Jacob bowed seven times on his way to his brother Esau? So I take it he started back where it was kind of a safe distance. And here's Esau coming. And all of a sudden, every so often, this guy gets down on his face to the ground. And then he gets up and he takes a few more steps. And then he gets on his face to the ground. What? For one thing, it's certainly communicating non-aggression. It's certainly communicating humility. It's certainly communicating that I, I'm coming unarmed. And I'm coming with a hard attitude to bow down before you. I'm, I'm kind of at your mercy. You know, I don't know if there's something like that in your life. For Jacob, he had to deal with his past before he could move forward. If God convicts you in that area, you may want to think through your approach. And okay, there might be something that is 20, 30, 40 years old that isn't just gone. It's there. And like Jacob, you've been thinking about it every day. I got to deal with it. How am I going to deal with it? Here's some ways to deal with it. And then finally, secondly, in this passage, not only does God deal with Jacob's past, but he deals with Jacob's pride. What's going on when he's wrestling with God? And when God reaches out and touches his hip, I think, I think it's exactly the same principle of what happens in 2 Corinthians 12 with the Apostle Paul. When there, he says a messenger of Satan, not allowed by God, but not God himself doing it, brings a, he calls it a thorn in his flesh. We have no idea what it is. Some believe it was poor eyesight. We have no idea. And three times I begged God, get rid of this. And God said, no. I've put this here to keep you humble and to keep you from depending on yourself and your own strength. And certainly Jacob has been a self-reliant man. God touches his hip. God changes his name Put the past behind you. Deal with the past. I'm going to give you a new name, Israel. I'm going to begin a new work in you. And you better be dependent upon me. And to do that, I'm going to touch your hip because you lose your strength. You can't pick anything up anymore. You can't run anymore. You can't even get after old Reuben and kick him in the britches when he's mouthing off to his mother, Leah. There he is. Lord, I'm your man. And God deals with Jacob's pride by wrestling with him and touching his hip. I have no idea what it means that Jacob wrestled with man and God and prevailed. I don't get that verse, in case somebody's wondering about that verse. Okay? I couldn't figure it out, and I couldn't see any commentaries that made sense of it. Because God could whip him easy, so I don't know what that meant. So we'll ask God when we get to heaven. What about that story with Jacob? What was that all about? At least part of it is, I had to deal with that boy's past, and I had to deal with that boy's pride, because I was going to do a work in his life. Right? Let's pray. Some of us need to give God permission to begin to deal with our past. And some of us need to acknowledge our pride that is a lid, a self-reliance, an idea that I can handle it instead of a brokenness before God and a humility before the Lord that allows him to lift us up. He hates our pride. 
We're prayerless because of our pride. Give God permission to root around in your past and to break you of your pride. Clean out those closets so you can get school started right. Father, thank you for the ministry of your Holy Spirit and thank you for the the work of your word in us. Thank you for this remarkable story of Jacob. May we benefit from it deeply, spiritually, and accomplish much through it in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.